We can say that. But there's also evidence throughout the entire Old Testament. In fact, some scholars believe there's up to 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that a Messiah would come. And then that Messiah would be the prophet, would be the priest, and would be the king of the Jewish people, and, and, and as we have learned also, of the Gentile people, that is the people of non-Jewish people as well, the prophet, king, priest of the world. So this morning we're going to look at how the prophets, hundreds of years, in some cases upwards to 1,800 years before Jesus was born, would be predicting that Jesus would be the Messiah. There was a scholar uh, years ago, his name was Peter Stoner. He was the chairman of mathematics at, uh, at Pasadena College. And he did a thought experiment with about 600 college students. A statistics problem, if you will. He said, gosh, there, if there's 300 prophecies throughout the Old Testament, how, what would be the st uh, statistical probability of all of those coming true at the point of time Jesus was alive, at the point of a guy by the name of Jesus being born of a Virgin Mary? He said, man, that's way too complicated. He said, so let's just take eight. Let's just take eight prophecies. And let's see if we can mathematically figure out the probability of what just, if eight of those prophecies were to come true. And so in order for us to get our minds around it, he provided this illustration. He says, suppose that we take silver dollars and lay them all the way across the state of Texas, two feet deep. And then we take one of those silver dollars and we mark it with a black marker, mark it black. And we throw that silver dollar back into the others. And we take the whole state of Texas and we shake it up. And we allow those, uh, those silver dollars to, to rest. And then we blindfold one of you. And we tell you that you can travel as far as you wish to travel, but you must pick up the one silver dollar that is black. What's the chance of you getting the right one? That's the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present day, providing that the prophets wrote using their own wisdom. Now think about that for a second. If you and I were just to say, okay, I'm going to write eight prophecies, and it's going to be of my own, and God's not going to be involved in this. And it's going to revolve around one man at one point in time that all eight of those things are going to come true in that man's life. That's the same probability as finding that silver dollar in all of the state of Texas. So there must be something else going on here if that is the case. And as we examine Scripture, that puts a lot of weight on Scripture, does it not? To prove, to have that much evidence in Scripture to prove what the prophets were saying was true. It was sufficient. 
It was authoritative. It was clear. And it was necessary. How did they go about doing that? God spoke through them. That's the only way. Because from prophets from the, uh, from the Old Testament all the way from Genesis all the way through Malachi, each one of them touched on this idea of a coming Messiah. As we look into our scripture this morning, we're going to look at seven of these prophecies that are found in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1. So if you would, please open your Bibles with me. And we're going to go from uh, Hebrews chapter 1 back into Isaiah 53 at, at some point. And as we come to God's word, let us pray. Father, as we come to your word in the book of Hebrews, we would ask that you would... Help us understand. You would help us be here with us. That you would remove the burdens from our shoulders, the anxieties from our hearts, that you would clear our minds, that you would touch us in a clear and unmistakable way. Lord, we trust that your spirit is with us. In fact, it's in this sanctuary right now, weighing heavy on us. So, Lord, do your work through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read the entire chapter. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him, he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For who of which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all of God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels uh, winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of the uprightness of the scepter of your kingdom, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions and... You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will, be, they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Now the point that the author of the Hebrews is making in this first chapter is that Jesus is greater than the angels. How do we know that? Because of what the prophets had written about Jesus 
700 years to 1800 years before this particular book was written. And there's evidence throughout all of these. All these come from the book of uh, Psalms. We look in the book of Isaiah 53, and many of you know Isaiah 53 like the back of your hand. It is the, uh, one of the hallmark passages of Scripture that predict Jesus and predict the Messiah. He says, but the prophet Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? In whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. This is a description of who Jesus was. He was a normal everyday dude, just like us. He wasn't special in any sort of physical way that would point to the fact that he was the Messiah. He was just a normal, everyday guy. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and from one uh, whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet when he did not open his mouth like a lamb, he was led to slaughter, and the sheep that were before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And then they made a grave, his grave, with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him as he has put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall be probing all of his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in the land. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many on the, on the account of righteousness, and he will bear their inequities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes the intercession for transgressors. Does that not describe our Lord and Savior Jesus? And that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. So we see here when we ask the question, <clears throat> are those 300 some odd prophecies about the Messiah being Jesus reliable? We have to ask that question. Even as believers, we have to ask that question. The short answer is yes. And here's how they are authoritative. That is, when the prophets speak, they speak on behalf of God. It's really interesting. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of, thus saith the Lord. And 
during that time, they would have the, the people who would have read that and heard that would have completely understood it. Because during that time, there were no democracies. There were all either theocracies or monarchies. And when the king would issue an edict, he would say, thus the king says, thus everything went. That's what you would do. There were no questions. And so when the Lord says this, and they write it, thus the Lord says, it's taken from them in that same culture. It's the same way. Wow, this is the Lord speaking. Now here in America, it's, it's difficult for us to wrap our brains around some of that because we don't live our lives that way in, 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 under an authoritarian way as, as they once did. But there are some illustrations that we can look to, some points in life where we can look to to say, yeah, we actually do live in some structure and under some authority. Remember if kids, when you were just being ornery and your mom had the last of it, and she would say, wait till your father gets home. Where would you be about the time that you knew your dad was going to be home? Were you within 10 miles of the house? Were you hiding under your bed? Were you trying to rationalize in your mind and come up with three or four different excuses and the reason why you were treating your mom in the way that you were treating her? We do have a sense of authority. We do, even within organizations. We look to the military. The military has a, a structure, an authoritative structure. When a commanding officer gives a lawful order you have to obey it. And if you don't, you could be court-martialed up to a maximum of five years in prison or dishonorably discharged. What the commanding officer says, as long as it's lawful, goes. You have to do it. The second is that they speak clearly. As we read Isaiah 53 and as we read Hebrews 1 in understanding that those prophecies came out of uh, all the Psalms and we look back in, we could clearly see a, a very strong case could be made that it, whether you're a Christian or not, you could clearly see that they're speaking about Jesus. Put that slide up there, that, uh, that, that first slide. We see this also in, in, our, in our daily lives. When we take an eye test, you remember how fuzzy things are? They're not clear. We can't see them. And then all of a sudden, they put those lenses on, and they're flipping that thing, and they're asking this and that. And pretty soon, our eyes come down, and we're able to clearly see. That's part of the purpose of the prophets when, when they're talking about Jesus because how odd would it be if Jesus showed, out, showed up without any announcement? How odd would it be for a guy just to show up, a normal-looking guy like any of us, showing up one day and saying, I'm God. I forgive your sins. 
And he says it in an authoritative way. Just not, oh, I forgive you because you've done something wrong against me. But I have forgiven your sin. Think of a guy who is uh, healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving hearing to the deaf. He's making wine out of water. And not only just a little bit of wine, but a bunch of wine. And not only just the best quality of wine that anybody had ever tasted at that time. You would think he was nuts. Who is this guy, we would ask? God in his graciousness and his mercy knew that because we are naturally skeptic as people, we would have to have almost like a foreshadowing, you know, a story where you see or a movie when you, when you uh, see the behind shot of somebody walking into a dark room and that music starts to play. You're like, someone's about to have something happen in there. And you're like, and that person's clueless. Like, get out of there, get out of there, right? <clears throat> That's foreshadowing. That's what God is doing throughout the entire Old Testament through these prophecies. He's foreshadowing. He's telling us what's going to happen before it happens. So then when it does happen and we look back on it, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Suddenly we have all these pieces that now make sense that come and as as a jigsaw puzzle comes together, it becomes clear Instead of that out-of-focus stuff and not knowing exactly what it looks like, now we can clearly see what it looks like. And it looks like Jesus is the Messiah, that he had to be born. The third is that their words are necessary. They have to be here, as I just explained. Otherwise, we may not believe it all. There wouldn't be any evidence that there would be a Jesus ever to come or a Messiah ever to come. So why believe this guy who just shows up? And we see in life there are things that are necessary for, um, uh, for reality to happen. Take baking soda, for instance. Those of us who love to bake cookies, what happens when we forget the baking soda? The cookies don't rise. They don't taste like they should if they had baking soda. And there's just a little bit of baking soda is all you need in order for all of that stuff to, to rise as it's cooking so that air gets in there so that they taste yummy. In, the very, in, the, in a similar way, the prophets had to write this so that, that we would know when the Messiah would arrive and, and who that Messiah would be. Lastly, their words are sufficient. No more evidence is needed than what has already been written. Have you all ever played the game Clue? You know, Colonel Mustard did it with a candlestick in the billiard room. Right? As you are starting the game, nobody knows anything about who did what and with what and what room. And then you roll the dice, you go room to room to room, and you're collecting evidence. You're trying to figure out who, the, um, who did it, 
What did they do it with and where did they do it? You have insufficient evidence until there's a point in the game where you collect enough evidence through those little pads there as you mark off and you kind of deduce what's going on. Now you have sufficient evidence to say, yes, Colonel Mustard did it in the billiard room with a candlestick. The prophets are much the same way in everything that they have written. The evidence is sufficient. We don't need any more evidence. Now, for us, this type of certainty rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Because we're boldly declaring who Jesus is. We're boldly declaring that there is a Messiah needed. There is no question in our mind. We are firmly convicted of this fact. There are many people living in today who are skeptics and who would say, well, wait a second. That's your interpretation. That's your perception. That's your truth. That's your opinion. That's your assumption. Philosophers will call this subjective truth. It's things that we see. It's things that we know. And what we are claiming is objective truth. That it actually happened. So then there's a tension between us. We're going to show a video here to help illustrate this point and to help us understand it just a bit better. Okay. Okay. Rut row. Yeah, there's a connection problem. Let's see if we can get that rolling. If not, I can describe it. The circuit breaker went off. Oh, too many lights going on. Okay. So as as they try to correct that here, there, um, when people are colorblind. Um, they often can't see reds and greens. If they're severely colorblind, they can't see blues. And so when, when a colorblind person looks at a, who's got a, uh, a Christmas sweater, right? A green sweater with a red Christmas tree or vice versa, I guess it would be a green Christmas tree with a red sweater. When they see that, they would see like a dark brown and like a lighter brown. They wouldn't be able to distinguish between the greens and the, and the grays. Here we go. So this, this gentleman is colorblind.
so this he's a seventh grader, colorblind. Um, you could see the wave of emotion when he put those glasses on, and then he could objectively see greens and reds and blues. And I don't know if you caught it, the principal's also colorblind. Those are the principal's colorblind glasses. And he wanted to share his glasses with this uh, seventh grader to allow him to experience the full joy of what it is to live in this world and to see the vivid colors that are there. He was completely overwhelmed. And you could, at one point, the principal said, now you can see the beauty of the world. We use this as an illustration because oftentimes we are colorblind. We can't distinguish between the reds and the greens and the blues. And then Jesus comes into our life and he puts those glasses on us. And we're like, whoa! It brings the world into a whole different realm. So when we speak about objective truth... I want you to think about this kid who put those glasses on. Now, now he could see objective truth. He can see the red, the green, and the blue, and all the vividness, and all the wonder, and all of the glory. Our firstborn, Samuel, he's colorblind. We got him those glasses a couple years ago, three years ago for Christmas. He had the same reaction. He was absolutely overwhelmed. He was so tired. He's a terrific artist, and he had to do what? They had to do watercolors for one project, and it came back that his project was beautiful, but it was all done in browns because he couldn't distinguish the colors. Oftentimes, we find ourselves in a very, very similar situation. In fact. This isn't just of today when people think of subjective truth. This is my opinion. This is the way I see the world. That's the way you see the world. It also happened, well, it's happened throughout history. In the 1700s, there's a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He, may, he perhaps may, might be America's greatest theologian. He wrote a lot of stuff. I'm going to show a slide. Uh, it's really, really small. I'll read it to you. Now, granted, his style's a bit different. They wrote a bit differently back then, so just bear with me. He says, all gracious persons, which means people of Christ, have a solid, full, thorough, and effectual conviction of the truth and the great things of the gospel. They no longer halt between two opinions. The great doctrines of the gospel cease to be any longer doubtful things or matters of opinion. He wrote this in a book called Religious Affections, which is essentially how do you fall in love with God. And they even noticed it back during that time. You see, um, when objective truth overwhelms the subjective truth, we saw that in that video when that kid put those on, how overwhelmed, how joyful he was. A joy and excitement flood over our hearts. In part... Because we could have never imagined something so beautiful. And so when we read these prophets and these prophecies, that's part of what God is trying to stir in our hearts. How beautiful is Jesus? How important is Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man? 
God's only begotten son. How beautiful is he? He's so beautiful that I'm going to tell you all about him before he even arrives. So that when he arrives, you will know him beyond a shadow of a doubt. That is objective truth. It's not a matter of opinion, not a matter of perception, not a matter of your truth or your assumptions. You see, this opens our eyes in ways that our eyes would never be opened before. So as we consider this Advent season, we consider Jesus, and we consider all of the things that we do during this season. Let us remember two things. First, how beautiful is He? And second, remember this week the hope that He brings to us. That hope that was started in, but with the prophets hundreds of years before He came. This passage causes a thankfulness to wash over our hearts of those who believe, does it not? It instructs others. And it forces all of us to answer the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? You see, this passage will comfort those who have answered that question, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And my hope is, our hope as a staff, is that that comfort washes over you, that that will embolden you even further and give you greater encouragement to dive into the Bible, to learn of all of these wonderful truths. There's up to 300 of you of them to discover with the prophet with the prophecies. Our hope also is that it will instruct you it will help you when you are helping others understand who Jesus is. That you give a, a longer view of history. That it's just not Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Why? Well, because he saved me. It's that, but it's also because, man, God had predicted this, and this was part of his plan since the beginning of time. And when we look back through Scripture, back through the Old Testament, there are 300 touch points that predict that Jesus is going to be who he says he is. As a church, I want to challenge us today to live this scripture as it were true. Last week, we spoke of persecution and we spoke of being reviled. When people of God come together and unified and believe that Jesus is the Messiah and hold fast to that, families change. Neighbors change. The workplace changes. Your friends begin to change. 
as all of that happens, you get made fun of. Oh, you believe that Jesus guy? <laughs> well, you're, so you're telling me that he says he is the way, he is the truth, he is life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through me? That's pretty exclusionist of you. Where's the inclusion in that? Doesn't God love everyone? See, these are the questions that we must be able to ably answer. Very winsomely and with a smile on our face. And then live those convictions out in such a way that when the rubber meets the road and the crisis in your life, they're like, whoa, you're different. You don't react the same way that everybody else reacts. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I can show, show you how you could have the same thing that I have. Oh, I might be interested in knowing something about that. In my life as a Christian, in, it's been 20 years, there has been probably 15, maybe 20 conversations I've had with people just based off of that. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, as God tells us, we need to have a ready answer. This is part of that ready answer. He had to be born to become the Messiah the one who would save us from our sins. Let us pray. Father, as we come, we are thankful that you saw fit to have those who love you write all of this down and that you inspired them through your spirit, that you breathed out scripture so that we could have a record of it so that we can go back and examine it. So we can go back and um, uh, press against it and ask, is this true? And Lord, we know that those who have gone before us who have asked that question, from the, from the strongest of atheists to those who are lukewarm on who you are, the further they examine who you are, the more they convinced of who you are, objectively, that this is true. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.